You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I want you to have your finger in John 8, and I want you to just for a brief moment turn back to Ezekiel 28. We can flip from one to the other, from Ezekiel 28 to John 8. Let me give you a little bit of context for Ezekiel 28 before I read these few verses here. This is a prophecy. Ezekiel 28 is actually an oracle against the king of Tyre. And this, this judgment that's proclaimed against the king of Tyre goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28 is this description of the king of Tyre. But halfway through the chapter of Ezekiel 28, the prophecy changes focus from Tyre's earthly king to Tyre's spiritual king. So Ezekiel begins to look past the, the man on the throne, as it were, to the power behind the man on the throne in Ezekiel 28. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 11. And you will see that as, although Ezekiel addresses this man as the king of Tyre, he, he cannot possibly be describing an earthly king He is describing a spiritual force or a spiritual individual. Verse 11 of Ezekiel 28, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onks, the jasper, the lapis, the lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. In the eyes of all who see you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. Now turn over to John chapter 8, verse 44. Some more information about this very same character. John 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth to you, You do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Let's pray together. Our God, we do thank you for your word and what it teaches us about spiritual truths and even Satan himself. It is our desire that as we talk about these things today, we must address the subject of our enemy, the enemy of our souls, the evil one. But in so doing, it is our desire to focus our heart and attention upon you and what you have done, that you would be glorified and that you might be the focus of our hearts and of our minds. 
We pray that you would help us through your word to think clearly about what is before us and to apply these things to our lives. We ask that your grace would be with us and that our affections and our praise might be directed to Jesus Christ, for he is worthy of all of that, our attention, our focus. May you be glorified here amongst your people through your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the Bible is a very narrow book, and by narrow I'm not referring to its physical dimensions, but by its spiritual parameters. The Bible says that there is truth, and that truth can be known, and that to know the truth and to embrace the truth is to be savingly related to God, that God delivers us by his truth. And the Bible says that there is truth, and then there is error. In fact, there is truth, and then everything else is error. Because whatever is not true is false. And if it is false, it is erroneous. So the truth is not a a big target that most people hit most of the time or that everybody sort of shares a part of or everybody has a piece of. The truth is actually a very narrow thing, a a very narrow sliver. And then outside of the truth, there is all kinds of error. Because the Bible defines truth not as something that everybody stumbles into and everybody has a part of, but as something which very few people find and very few people know, and which most of the people will miss. It's kind of fashionable in our day to deny that the truth can be known, and to say, well, I don't really know the truth, and you don't really know the truth, and who really can know the truth, and can the truth even really be known? In fact, there are even Christian leaders who want to suggest, or people who call themselves Christian, they are leaders, but they call themselves Christians, who would deny that the truth can be known, and they say, really, the truth is out there, and who is really to say or to know what is true and what is not true? And so they deny that truth is even knowable, and they say that to make any kind of truth claim, to, to say, to make the statement, I know what is true, and I know what the truth is, and here is the truth. To say that in a conversation or even from a pulpit, they would say is the height of arrogance. Who are you to say that you have discovered or that you know what the truth is? I actually think that to deny that the truth can be known is the height of arrogance. And here's why. If God says that there is truth, and God says He has revealed truth, and He says that truth can be known, and that salvation comes as a result of knowing and believing the truth, then for anybody to stand up and say, I don't really think that the truth can be known, that is to make the claim that you know more about the nature of truth and what is true than God Himself does. To contradict what God says about truth, When God says the truth can be known and you contradict it or someone contradicts it and says that the truth cannot be known or that the truth is unknowable, that is the height of hubris. That is the height of arrogance. See, I think the humble thing to do is to affirm what God says about truth and to say truth is not something that's inside of me. Truth is not something that you make up or that I make up or that you determine or that I determine. Truth is not something we determine. Truth is something we discover. Truth is outside of us. Truth is the furniture of the universe that you and I bump into all the time. We are constantly knocking our shins against the truth. And if you try and live in contradiction to the truth, you're going to get bruised because the truth doesn't move. So truth is not something that you and I determine. This is what I think is true for me. Truth is something that you and I discover. Moreover, truth is actually something that is revealed to us. You see, I cannot know the truth apart from the revelation of God. Now, there are things that you and I could know, right, even if God had never spoken a word. Is everything that we know to be true revealed in Scripture? The answer to that is no. You and I would still be able to know that 2 plus 2 is 4, even if God had never written a verse of Scripture. We would be able to 
sit around in our little enclaves and have two apples here and two apples here and we put them together, we add them, we count them and there's four apples. And we can do that every way until Sunday and we're always going to come up with four. We might be able to know certain things are true even if God had never spoken a word. But you and I could never know what is true about God or what is true about Scripture or what is true about salvation or life or heaven or hell or eternity or eternity past or the spiritual realm or Jesus or salvation or our own iniquity, or the truth of our own hearts. We could never know any of that apart from God revealing it to us. So it is not arrogant to say, look, I have, I know the truth. That's not an arrogant statement. It is a true statement to say, I have discovered the truth, and I have had the truth revealed to me, because the truth is outside of me. Not that I determine it, but it's outside of us. And so God has revealed this to me. I wouldn't know the truth any more than the next guy if it were up to me to determine it. Would you? Why, why is it that you know the truth? If you know the truth about salvation, it's for one reason only, and Jesus says this because God has revealed that truth to you. He has revealed truth to some, and He has hidden truth from others. If you know the truth about salvation and eternal realities, is because God has by His grace revealed that to you. I know the truth, but it is not because I'm smarter than the next guy, or wiser than the next guy, or more spiritually astute than the next guy. I'm just as benighted and ignorant and stupid and limited and sinful as any other person on the face of this planet. But I know the truth, and you know the truth, and why do we know it? Because it's outside of us, and God has opened our darkened eyes and illuminated our darkened mind, and He has softened our hardened hearts so that you and I might know the truth and see the truth and then turn around and love the truth. There is the truth, and everything else is a lie. There's the truth, and everything else is a lie. Now, who is behind the truth, and what is true? God is true. Who is behind the lies? Yeah, this last Friday in Awana, uh, the leader, uh, Dave wasn't able to be there for the boys club and he usually does the lesson or somebody else does the lesson. He asked me if I would do Ask the Pastor, which is where I stand up and I get grilled by a bunch of, uh, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders for 15 or 20 minutes. And I actually love it because I love that interaction. It's great to be able to interact with those guys on spiritual issues. And one of the little girls there asked a very astute question. She said, why are there so many false religions in the world? You know, my first thought was, am I ever glad that this little girl knows that there are false religions in the world, and that there are so many of them. That's a huge accomplishment, right? Now, here was a little girl who was able to recognize there is truth, and then there is a whole bunch of falsehood out there. And I answered her from this verse, John 8:44. It is because there is a spiritual force of wickedness, a being, a spiritual being, who is a master of deception and a master of lies. And Satan doesn't just put out one lie or two lies. He, he buries the truth in lies. He puts out so many lies that you and I are almost unable to even see the truth because there are so many lies to choose from. Imagine if Satan had just done this. If there was truth and then Satan had said, I'm going to come up with one really good lie. Just one. And he had put out that one very good lie. And you and I would sit back and we would look at the truth and we would look at a lie and we would study them. This is the truth and this is... What somebody else is proposing is truth. I guess you wouldn't know that it's truth right off. You have two options, right? You'd be looking at those two options, one on this side and one at the other. And then you would probably be able to discern which one was true and which one was false, wouldn't you? If you just see one lie right next to what is true, you'd probably be able to pick out the truth. But listen, that's not what Satan has done. There is the truth, and then he buries it with lies. There are so many lies about Jesus, about God, about the Bible, about history, about reality, about heaven, about hell, about the universe in which we live, about the age of the earth, about everything that you can imagine. He has, per, he has put out so many lies that the truth becomes 
almost blurred by it so that you can, you, people are unevenly able to discern the truth. And some people even give up hope, and that's why they say, who knows what the truth is? There's so many options out there. That's how Satan works. There is the truth, and then there, everything else is a lie, and he surrounds the truth by lie so as to deceive, and his ultimate goal is to destroy people. So we've come to John 8, verse 44. John 8, verse 44. This is probably one of the most better known verses in all of the 8th chapter of John's Gospel, probably maybe even in all of the Gospel of John. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now I memorized that verse when I was a brand new Christian, and here's why. I got into a conversation with an unbeliever one time, and I had the audacity to suggest that not everybody born in this world is a child of God. Because this person said, well, we're all God's children. And I I very gently contradicted her, and I said, actually, we're not all God's children. Not everybody who's born is born a child of God. You must only become a child of God by rebirth. And boy, I will tell you what, I was a brand new believer. I got shredded. Who are you to claim that you could judge somebody else's heart? And suggest that not everybody is a child of God. And that God might not have those other people and might not love those other people and have them as His children. Who are you to determine who's right and who's wrong and who's a child of God and, and how you get into, into heaven? And I was, I was just bowled over by the response to this person. and So I went and I memorized John 8.44. Now here was my proof that not everybody is a child of God, right? I memorized that verse in case I ever came across that in a discussion again. I haven't. I've never been in a discussion like that where I've needed to pull out that verse, but I've got it in my I've got it in my arsenal, and if I ever need it, I'm ready for it because that's what John 8 tells us. It tells us not only about the nature of Satan, but what he shares in common with those who belong to him. This is very important. You remember the context, John 8, written to these fake believers, people who thought they had believed or or feigned belief in the Messiah, really to cover their murderous hearts. Jesus identified their murderous hearts, said, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, this Abraham did not do. And he's really identifying the, the source and the root of both their hatred for him and their love for the lies, and their hatred of the truth. And he has told them, you're of your father, you do the desires of your father, and he has sort of alluded to this. Now in John 8:44, he comes right out and says it, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. And now what he had alluded to before, he comes right out and says plainly, drops a bombshell right in the middle of this discussion with these Jews, and it is plain for everybody to see who Jesus is identifying as their spiritual father. The evil one, the wicked one, a liar, a deceiver, the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, that is what he says is their spiritual father. And in so doing, he identifies two things, murder and lies, that Satan has in common with those who spiritually belong to him. That's what John 8.44 is about. So let's take a look. John 8.44, this is the verse we're going to deal with, and we are going to get through this entire verse. There's so much here, and I'll tell you what, I actually, it took me a a lot of restraint to keep from going off into sort of a little study on the devil himself. But we did this in the articles that we covered on spiritual warfare recently. And I don't like preaching on the subject of Satan. It brings me no joy whatsoever. And every time we talk about stuff like this, I really do want to keep our focus on the Lord and what he has done and the marvelous grace that he has shown us. Because really, Satan is not worthy of our focus or attention. Our great and glorious triune God is. So even as we discuss this, I want us to reflect upon what God has done to deliver us from this wicked kingdom that you and I were once part of and we were willing captives in. So John 8, verse 44, You are of your father the devil. Let's read it together. And you want to do the desires of your father. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, when I recited that to you earlier, I had some sort of a... When I, when I memorized that verse, it was in the New King James. I think it was between changing from the King James to the New King James. And since then, I read the NASB and I've studied this all in the NASB. So when I recite that verse, guess what happens? Yeah, it's not going to match anything you have in your laps. None of you, no matter how wild of a paraphrase it is. John, John 8, 44, two things that the devil has in common with those who belong to him. Murder and lies. Let's look at the first one, murder. Jesus says, you are of your father the devil. Now, that's a bombshell to the Jews. That is one of the most insulting things that Jesus could have said to them. Now, Jesus didn't say it to be insulting. He said it to be honest, to tell the truth. He's doing it with loving motives, but it's true. It's insulting, but it's true. For a Jew to be told that they, the physical descendants of Abraham, his offspring, sons of the covenant, those who read the law every Sabbath in the synagogue and sought to obey the law for their own righteousness, they viewed themselves as being friends of God because Abraham was a friend of God and they were a child of Abraham. And now to be told, your spiritual father is not God and it's not Abraham, it is Satan. Now Satan is the arch enemy of God. They viewed themselves as the friends of God. Abraham was a friend of God. We come from Abraham. We're friends of God. And Jesus is now saying to them, you are in spiritual alliance with the evil one. That was as insulting a thing as he could possibly say to them. This is not the only time in the New Testament that the children of the devil, or that unbelievers are called children of the devil. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus, in describing or um, in explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares, said, The field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Matthew 13. Paul, on in the city of Paphos, before the uh, uh, the proconsul there, what was his name? Sergius? He said, Jim, you're the one that preached through Acts. You should know that. Acts 13, there was that Jewish false prophet magician there who was trying to distort what Paul was saying. And Paul said to him in Acts 13.10, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Called called Eliamus, the son of the devil. So all unbelievers, all who are born into this world, are children of Satan by default. You don't have to swear allegiance to do that. said it a couple weeks ago. You don't have to dance around a pentagram and sacrifice chickens and drink blood to be a child of the devil. By birth, you were a child of the devil. You were born into this earth, a child of the evil one. Now, in what way are you and I children of the evil one? What does Jesus mean by this when he says their father is the devil? He's not talking about a physical relationship. It's not as if Satan has physically spawned or sired all of humanity. That's not it. There are even some, and just so you know this, and this is kind of wacky stuff, but there are some white supremacist groups who teach that there was a physical relationship between Eve and Satan, and that produced the line of Cain, and that from Cain comes all of the black people and all of the present-day Jews. And so when Jesus says to the Jews, you are of your father the devil, they would say he is actually describing a literal physical spawning of a satanic seed, which is the modern-day Jews. And guess who they say the chosen ones of Israel are? Yeah, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys like me. Not you guys with dark hair. But the blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys like me, we are the actual children of God. And all of the other ones are children of the devil. It's not a physical relationship that Jesus is describing here that took place. Neither is, the, neither is Satan the father of wicked people in the same way that God is the father of the righteous. In other words, the, the wicked are not made wicked by the devil in the same way that the godly are made godly by God. It is a different relationship that is being described. 
How does God make the godly godly? How does He make us His children? He begets us by His Spirit. He puts in us a new nature, a new heart. He causes us to be born again. He opens our eyes. He adopts us into His family. He regenerates us. He redeems us. He purchased us. We become His by adoption and really by a spiritual creation of a new life within us by causing us to be born again. That's not how the wicked become wicked. And that's not how the wicked become children of the devil. The children of devil doesn't, the, 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 the devil does not create children in the same way that God creates children. What's being described here is a kinship of desires. Do you notice what Jesus says? You are of your father the devil and what? The desires of your father you want to do. See, that describes the relationship that exists between Satan and those who are his. It is a relationship of desires. What makes somebody a child of God, a, a child of Satan? The fact that they share the same nature, fallen, corrupt, wicked, hostile to God, that the devil does, and they reflect the same desires that the devil has. You desire to do the will of your spiritual father, the devil. That's what Jesus is saying. It is the desires that you have which make you wicked and which make you a child of the devil. It is a spiritual relationship. When I was born into this world, I was born an enemy of God, hostile to God, an enemy of God in my mind through wicked works. I was born under His wrath. I was born deserving His judgment, just even because of what Adam did. I was born a fallen individual with no righteousness in me, no truth in me, darkened in my understanding, a slave of sin, enslaved to iniquity. I, I drunk iniquity like water. Uh, I always did that which displeased God. I did nothing which pleased Him. I didn't want anything to do with God. There was a hostility in my heart toward God which just continued to grow and grow and grow over the course of my life. And guess what I found? I found that as somebody born into that condition, I was a spiritual ally of Satan. I never swore allegiance to him, but my desires were the same as his. My wants were the same as his. What he wanted me to do, guess what? I didn't put up any resistance. If he wanted it, I did it. If he desired it, so did I. And I wanted to do the desires of my spiritual father who was the devil. And what, the, what does the devil desire? He desires to murder. He desires to lie. And guess what he finds in Adam's fallen race? A group of people who are very willing to murder in their hearts, commit murder if necessary, and to lie. We do the desires of our Father because that is what we want to do. By the way, this verse, verse 44, should put to rest the myth of free will. What do unbelievers want to do? The desires of their Father. That's what unbelievers want to do. Do you know what your will is? Your will is an expression of your desires. What do you will to do? Exactly what you desire to do. No man desires one thing and wills something else. So what do you will to do from the moment of your birth? Exactly what the devil wants you to do. Because you are a spiritual ally and you desire to do the same thing that he desires to do. And so you find yourself doing his desires. That is your will. See, our will is not the solution to our problem. Our will is the problem. That's why we're in bondage to sin. We desire to do everything he wants us to do. And he wants us to do wickedness. And we are willing captives and we go along with that doing the desires of our Father who is the devil before salvation. Now I want you to notice from verse 44 what you and I can learn or see is true of Satan. Satan is a real spiritual being, a real entity. He's not a myth. He's not a legend. There are some Christians who don't even believe that Satan exists. He's just a metaphor for evil. And he's sort of a, a biblical representative, sort of an invention of a pre-scientific age when they believed in those things, and so he's sort of a metaphor, an analogy for everything that is wicked. We just blame it on the devil. Like, uh, who was it, Flip Wilson, who said the devil made me do it? Right? So that reflects the sentiments of a, of a bygone era. And now we know better, and Satan really doesn't exist. 
Do you think you can, do you think you can mesh that theology with what Jesus teaches here? To Jesus, Satan was not a myth. He wasn't a legend. He wasn't just an analogy for evil. He was a real spiritual being. And we also learn that Satan has desires, that his desires are shared by his children. We learn that he is a murderer, that he lies, that he is the father of lies, that he inspires other people to lie. We know that he has a nature that is filled with murder and lies. We know that he is powerful, he is influential, he is able to deceive, he really truly exists, and he is very, very active. We learn all of that from chapter 8, verse 44. The devil is a real spiritual being, and he has children, and his children are active, and his children obey him. Right? I obeyed Satan better as a child of Satan than any of my children have ever obeyed me, or any of your children have ever obeyed you, and far better than you and I as children of God are able to give obedience to him. My obedience to Satan before I was a believer was unquestioning, absolute, resolute, and perfect. My obedience to God has not been that. Because guess what? I'm fighting against a sinful flesh which still clings to this redeemed person. And I fight and I war against that and my obedience is imperfect. My obedience is there, but it's not nearly as perfect as I once obeyed my other father. Satan is the spiritual father of all unbelievers. Now, is it hateful to tell somebody that? He says, it sounds so hateful, doesn't it? You're of your child, you're of your father, the devil. I mean, how much hate do you have to have in your heart to tell somebody that? It's true, isn't it? Right. So is it hateful to tell somebody the truth? No, it is, it is better to tell somebody the truth, even if it can be misconstrued as hatred, than it is to lie to somebody and have them think that you love them. Now, I don't suggest that you go out to lunch today and your waitress stops by and says, hey, did you know you're of your father the devil? Because there are some truths that are spoken in the wrong way, in the wrong context, and, you know, it's just out of, it doesn't, it doesn't advance the cause at all. But though it would be a true statement, would it not? It's not unloving to say that. What would you think of a doctor who said to every patient that he ever had, you know what, you are fine. You are healthy as a horse. Nothing to worry about. And then you ask the doctor, why, why would you do that? Well, I'm just showing people love. It would be unloving for me to say to that poor man, you got cancer, you're going to die in six months. Why would I tell him that? That's not a loving thing to say. I want my patients to know how much I love them. And so I tell them all, they're fine. No, no, no need to tell the obese woman who has heart disease that she's going to die if she doesn't change her lifestyle. We don't tell her that. I wouldn't be loving to tell somebody that. I want my patients to know how much I love them. Would you think that that's a loving doctor? Or would you say, you are a wicked man because you have withheld the truth from people who need the truth. Right? If you can read the words of Jesus in John 8:44 and think that that and 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 you are unable to affirm that those are loving words coming from the lips of a loving Lord then you have a perverted idea of what love is this is a loving statement to tell people what is true of them spiritually and what they need as a cure is the ultimate expression of love to hide that from them is hatred it is hatred to hide the truth from somebody because all you're doing is padding the road to their eternal destruction. And they're going to walk off into eternal destruction, but at least they thought you loved them, right? And they're going to find out that wasn't love at all. To not speak the truth to somebody is not at all an expression of love. So what desires does Satan have? Well, first is murder, right? There are two of them, I said. Murder and lies. The first one is murder. Look what John says in, or Jesus says in John 8:44. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. What beginning is Jesus describing? It's not describing the beginning of Satan's creation or the beginning of Satan's existence because God didn't create Satan as a murderer. We read that in Ezekiel 28. Create, Satan was created perfect, 
He was created glorious. He was created as the anointed cherub that covered all the rest of them. He was the highest of God's angelic creations. He was created in perfection, and there was no iniquity or fault found in him when he was created. He fell from that. So when did he become a murderer? He became a murderer in his fall. But when Jesus describes him as being a murderer from the beginning, he's not describing the beginning of Satan's existence, but the beginning of, I would think, time and creation. He was in the garden of God. He walked in Eden. He was perfect then, but sometime after creation, Satan fell. And immediately, I think it was immediately after creation, and he immediately tempted Adam and Eve. And from the very beginning of our encounter with Satan, which is Genesis chapter 3, we find out he was a murderer and he was a liar. So he was a murderer from the very beginning of time or of creation. He was a murderer from the beginning. Well, what, what is it that characterized him as a murderer? What murder do you think Jesus has in mind in John 8, 45, 44? What murder? Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel. Maybe it was Cain and Abel, right? Because... 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says that Cain was of the evil one and he slew his brother. That was the very first murder. It's the very first murder we have. And John indicates that as being something that is an expression of Satan's nature. So maybe Jesus means for the very first, one of the very first sins that we see manifesting in humanity is Cain killing his brother Abel. By the way, you know what Cain did? Or by, you know what Adam and Eve did after Cain killed Abel? They raised Cain. Isn't that a good one? That's an old one. Some of you will get it later. I don't think that that is the murder that Jesus is talking about in John 8.44. I think that what Jesus is describing in John 8.44 is the fall of man. When Adam fell, all died. Everyone. You and I all die. Why? Because we sinned and Adam sinned. And when Satan caused Adam to fall and Adam lost his perfection, Adam started dying and in that fall, Satan killed all of humanity. Every one of Adam's descendants. All of us have been killed by Satan in Adam's rebellion and his fall. That was the greatest act of mass murder that has ever been committed by any entity in the history of creation. An entire race was murdered in that one act of rebellion. From the very beginning, Satan was a murderer and he killed all of Adam's race. All of us have been killed by him in that event. That is the murder that I think Jesus is describing. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, Cain killing Abel and every murder since, just one little expression, one little glimpse of the desires that Satan has to kill people. Satan is a murderer and he desires to murder. And you know why he desires to murder men and women? Because we reflect the image of God and Satan sees in us the image of God. As marred as it is, as much as he hates God, he wants to kill men and he wants men to kill each other and he wants men to hate each other because he hates that image of God in us. And if he can kill the image of God in us, he has killed a representation of God and he hates God so much, that is why he seeks out physical murder. And every physical murder and every act of murder that has ever been committed has its roots and its origin in Satan and his desires. Now, what does, how does this apply to the Jews? He was a murderer from the beginning, right? This is the desire of Satan is murder. How does that apply to the Jews that Jesus is addressing in John 8? What are they seeking to do? They're seeking to kill him. We saw it all the way through chapter 7. They tried to seize him all the way through chapter 7. They tried to seize him in chapter 8. I think it's verse 20. Jesus twice, 37 and 41, I think it is, says, You are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. They have murderous intentions, and Jesus is diagnosing that. You're seeking to kill me. This is the same thing that your father desires. You're not like Abraham. You don't share Abraham's desires. You share the desires of your true spiritual father, who is the devil. There's a second desire that Satan has that are that is shared by his 
spiritual offspring, and that is the desire to lie. He does not, Jesus says in verse 44, stand in the truth. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks for his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The word stand in the truth really is the word for abide. It means to, to stay in something, to traffic in it, to live in it. The Satan does not, Satan does not stand or abide or live or traffic or can comport himself in the truth. If there is the truth to be found, Satan is not in it. Does the devil know what is true? He knows what is true, right? That's why he produces lies. He produces lies to deceive people from knowing the truth. It is interesting to notice all of the things that Jesus says here about the devil and how it is mimicked by the things which he has insinuated or spoken about these Jews and the things that are in common between these Jews and the devil. It's not just that they were filled with murder, but Jesus also indicated that they are apostates. That's what they denied in verse 41. We were not born of fornication. They're denying spiritual apostasy. We're we're not illegitimate spiritual children. We have not broken the covenant. We've not been unfaithful. We've not broken promise with God. We have been obedient. We haven't been disobedient. We haven't apostatized. And Jesus described Satan as being the original apostate. Satan knew the truth. He was in the truth. He was created in the truth. And he left it and he walked away from it. Another similarity between these Jews and Satan is the lack of place that they had for the truth. Jesus said to them, my word has no place in you. You don't receive my word. You don't hear my word. You don't listen to my word. You don't obey my word because you do not belong to me. Satan is the same way. There's no truth in Satan at all. He does not abide in the truth for there is no truth in him. There's nothing in his nature which is even remotely true or truthful. Satan will speak the truth only if he can use it to deceive somebody away from the truth to a lie. That is why the cults and all the false religions have an appearance or a a facade of truth to them, but they are like a one big truth or one big lie stuffed in the skin of the truth. He will only use the truth to deceive people if he can, because there's no truth in him. He can't use the truth truthfully, but he can promote the truth or some things that are true enough to deceive people into believing a huge error. So not only is Satan the original apostate, he has no truth in him, no place for truth, but Satan, like these Jews, he knew the truth and he turned from the truth, and though he had a head knowledge of it, he really didn't have an affection for the truth, did he? Satan knows the truth, but he has no affection for it. Same thing with these Jews. They were liars. They had no truth in him. No word for Jesus' truth. They knew the truth, but they did not love and did not have an affection for the truth. And when Satan speaks a lie, he speaks out of his own nature. That's similar to when Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When Satan speaks a lie, literally it would read, he speaks out of his own things. It is out of his own nature. Satan doesn't look around and borrow a lie from somebody else. Satan doesn't gather together his demons and say, give me something that I can use today. He is the originator and the father of all lies. So if there is a lie to be told, it has started with him. Every lie that is ever told, every falsehood or deception that men traffic in, they borrow from Satan. They traffic in his lies. He tells the lies, he builds the facades, he creates the deception, and then men traffic in those things. When you and I lie or when somebody else lies, they are borrowing it from him. He borrows lies from nobody. He comes up with them out of his own nature. He doesn't buy a lie and he doesn't borrow a lie. It's within him. He is so dark, he is so perverted, he is so twisted that when he lies, it is simply the overflow of his heart because he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Every lie has its origin in Satan. This is why the sin of lying is so hideous. It is hideous because God 
hates it, and God hates it because it is the polar opposite of what He is. God cannot tell a lie. God can only speak the truth, and everything God has ever said is true, and it is truthful, and God is incapable of deceiving anybody. God is incapable of lying to anybody or ever uttering a lie. God doesn't do that. Satan does that. And when somebody lies, they are giving voice to the devil's desires. Do you realize that? When somebody lies, they are simply giving the devil a voice. And they are throwing their lot in with him, and they are joining forces with him in attacking the truth and standing against the truth and against righteousness. And God hates lying lips. That's what the Bible says. Because it is such an aversion to his truthful, perfect, pure character that to utter a lie, to speak a lie, is to give voice to the devil. You think that's a serious thing? He doesn't have a physical throat, does he? Or a mouth. How does he speak? He speaks through us, right? Can you imagine a world in which there were no lies? Presidential debates would be a lot shorter, right? Commercials would be a lot shorter. College courses, out of a couple of minutes, right? High school, wouldn't be four years long. Can you imagine a world in which there was no lies? Hard to even imagine, isn't it? We're on, the, on guard against it because there are lies everywhere. Because Satan has a lot of mouthpieces. God hates lying lips, and the reason he hates lying lips is because it gives voice to the desires of the wicked one. And when somebody lies, they are demonstrating that their desire is the same as Satan's desire. That is a very serious thing. We've been going through John 8 and seeing all of these identifications of the child of God and children of the devil. And here's another thing that you can use to test yourself to see if you be in the faith. Do you think lightly of the truth? And do you think lightly of the sin of lying? Are you committed to the truth and do you love the truth? Children, do you lie to your parents? Do you give the devil a voice in your own home? Parents, do you lie to your children about things that you ought not to be lying to them about, to deceive them? Do you lie to your employer? Do you lie to your employees? Do you lie to your spouse? Do you lie to your relatives? When you do that, you utter the desires of the devil and you're doing what he wants to have done. And somebody who thinks so lightly of the truth that they are flippant in the sin of lying is somebody who has every reason to say, has my heart really been changed by the truth and have I been set free by the truth? Do I really love the truth and do I really love the God of truth? Or do I love instead murder, hatred, and falsehood, and deception, and lying? J.C. Ryle says, an indifference to the sin of lying, whether among old or young, rich or poor, is one of the most unmistakable symptoms of an ungodly condition. Do you hear that? One of the most unmistakable symptoms of an ungodly condition. You flippant with the truth? If you're flippant with the truth, you need to examine your heart. Because something is seriously wrong if you delight in the same things that the devil delights in. By this we know the children of God and the children of the devil. The one who practices righteousness is born of him. The one who does not practice his righteousness is not born of him, but is of his father, the devil. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the marks of those who have been redeemed are so clear in Scripture that you have called us to examine ourselves and to search our own hearts in light of the truth. And we thank you that you have made the truth known to us, that you have revealed the truth to us, that we can know it and we've been set free by it. You have delivered us from the domain of darkness. You have delivered us from the prince of lies and the father of lies. And Father, it is 
it is not only apostasy, but it is it is traitorous for us to utter falsehoods and to advance his kingdom and to not seek the truth and to love the truth. May we never war against the truth by uttering falsehoods and by joining forces with our former commander. We want to give humble obedience and submission to you, our great God, and to love the truth. And we pray that if there's anybody here whose heart has not been set free by the truth, that you would do that. You would draw them to yourself, show them the grace of salvation, make them to see their need for Christ and to be set free from sin by Him. And may those of us who have been delivered by your grace continue to bask in it and to enjoy it and to be sanctified by your truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.